This is episode 23 of Cinescope. And you want to know something? I don't think Mozart's going to help at all. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and returning to the podcast this week is Joe Darnell to talk about one of his favorite films, Vertigo. Joe, how are you doing? Doing wonderful, Chad. Thank you for having me back. It's been a while. It has, and I'm, I'm glad to have you back on the show. Of course, it's not the first time we've podcasted together since you were last on Cinescope. I was on movie bite with you just in early December, or I say movie bite, retake with you uh, back in early December to talk about Home Alone. Yeah, but that was like a year ago. So oh, it, it was last year. That That is a, a it's, true it's, fact. Such a long time ago. <laughs> well, I, I am so glad to have you back on Cinescope. And uh, we're talking about something very different than Tron Legacy this time around. We're talking about Vertigo by Alfred Hitchcock, which is a new movie for me. Uh, it shouldn't have been a new movie, but it is. And uh, mm. I'm, I'm looking forward to diving into it. But first, how about you remind everybody who's out there listening who you are and what you do? Okay. I haven't been on the internet, internet very much lately, but I am Joe Darnell. I have podcast about movies for a while now. I used to have a movie review show on YouTube in 2011, and that's what got me started concerning movies. I really enjoyed movies before then, but that was when I started to analyze them. And I just focused on well over 70 films that year that were coming out in theaters and reviewed them with some of my peers at the office. And it became uh, just a life-changing sort of thing to start uh, thinking through stories and appreciating them for all their, their worth, the, uh, what they mean to the filmmakers and to the audience. I, I like the story unfolding for both sides of the fence. Both sides of the fence or both sides of the screen? Uh, (laughs) It wouldn't have worked if I had said screen. But yeah, Vertigo was one of my first loves. And so I'm so glad I could talk about this. I don't think I've talked about this more than once before on a podcast. And it's high time that it came up again because I haven't watched it in a few years. And it was really refreshing this time around for some very specific reasons I'm sure we'll get to when we talk about our experience this go around. Definitely. It was it was an engrossing experience for me. Uh, but we'll get to that in just a moment. First, I just want to remind everybody out there, if you want to support the show because you like the show, please consider sharing it with friends first and also going to iTunes, rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the show because all of those things will help us to grow our audience and to keep making awesome things for everybody and keep talking about awesome movies. So please take a couple minutes out of your day, head over to iTunes and help us out. And yeah. with yeah. that, Joe, are you ready? Yes, let's do it. Okay, so we are talking about Vertigo, which was released on May 9th of 1958 and was directed by Alfred Hitchcock, who has a huge filmography. So I'm just going to name a few of the highlights. There's The Man oh. Who Knew Too Much, <laughs> Dial M for Murder, Rear Window, North by Northwest, Psycho and the Birds. 
And like I said, there's there's plenty more where that came from. This uh, script was written by Alec Coppel and Samuel Taylor, and it was book based on the French book D'Entre le Mort. And I don't know if that's completely correct, but I, I'd like to think it's close. And it was written by Pierre Boileau and Thomas Narcajac. Hmm. They're they're obviously French, and I am not French, so just forgive I'm me so for any you're pronunciations. All those names. <laughs> um, the music was by Bernard Herrmann, who. Uh, won an Academy Award for his score to The Devil and Daniel Webster. Also direct, or composed a score for Citizen Kane, which is uh. widely regarded as one of the best films of all time. And then many other films, including The Day the Earth Stood Still, Taxi Driver, and then mm. Hitchcock films such as North by Northwest, The Man Who Knew oh. Too Much, and Psycho. And Psycho is probably Bernard Herrmann's most iconic Score, oh yeah, mainly for the shower murder scene where you have the screeching violins and all that. If if you say the name Bernard Herrmann to anybody who's remotely familiar with film music, I, I I would think that that is the specific score that they would mention most of the time. And when I'm thinking about Hitchcock films, I think about Bernard Herrmann. Like they go together so well. There's a distinct flavor to Bernard's, uh, uh, you know, soundtracks. It it doesn't quite feel like it's um in keeping with the times maybe the 50s and 60s it, he he stood out from the crowd he wasn't just a another stereotypical composer he he had a he had some original ideas and i loved what he did with the man who knew too much psycho this one i didn't it didn't occur to me before that he also was responsible for psycho cuz i hadn't looked into him that very much but i had seen his name on these Hitchcockian films. And I'm glad that you pointed this out. I want to go back and check out the Citizen Kane soundtrack. Do you remember anything about it? I do not, because that is another one of those film classics. Shame on me. I just slapped my wrist for everybody out there. I have not seen Citizen Kane. Ooh, so. okay. Well, th that's some excitement right there, because, you know, Vertigo is supposed to be the best movie of all time that has finally beat the Citizen Kane for a lot of the world's most renowned movie critics. Right. I was I was going to mention that. That is completely correct. That was sort of my only background knowledge of this film was that it's supposed to be, quote unquote, the best film of all time. Right. Um, and it had surpassed Citizen Kane for that honor. Um, before we dive in and talk about that just a little bit more, this movie does star James or Jimmy Stewart, Kim Novak, Barbara Bell Geddes and Tom Helmore. So with all of that, Joe, what is what was your first experience with this movie? What what do you remember about this from the early days of Joe? Okay, it was one of the first movies my par parents shared. My dad watched it with me and my older brother when we were fairly young. I'm guessing I was about 11. And my dad liked to introduce us to movie classics. He shared this one and Rear Window with me. And It's a Wonderful Life for jimmy stewart films and that got me on a huge kick of watching jimmy stewart films and i started you know recording things on tcm and ac amc as a child because i really wanted to see all the jimmy stewart i could get but this was one that dad taped and i wore out the tape because i loved this movie <laughs> and even with commercials and everything it was already so long why did they have to have commercials and uh, it was just one of those films that was transformative for me because I mostly liked kids' films when I was introduced to this, but it really made me appreciate more adult themes and more nuanced story. 
the uh, the oh, just the the weight, the gravitas of this movie, and I don't know. It was just good story, and it, it got me on the edge of my seat. So I was fascinated by the characters. I thought that their dialogue was strong. I was totally hoodwinked by the 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 plot of the villain or the antagonist, if you will. I, I did not see it coming. I really wanted to understand what was going on to uh, Madeline. Why did she think that she was possessed? by a very old dead relative so when the truth was revealed i just thought it was so epic and i could relate to the theme of vertigo and acrophobia that i don't really have like a severe case of it or anything but i'm certainly not easy with heights and it has introduced some very awkward experiences for me, even as a child. So I could appreciate what Johnny Scotty was going through because I thought, oh, man, it just be terrible to have all these pent-up frustrations my whole life concerning vertigo and acrophobia and be to turn out like this guy hanging from a rooftop and uh, watching a cop dive down below <laughs> trying to save your life. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I, I am sort of impressed that for an 11 year old you were able to sort of stomach this kind of movie i mean it's not gruesome it's not like gory or violent excessively anyways but it is definitely a heavier film for an 11 year old <laughs> yeah my parents raised me a lot of classic films and it's a wonderful life was actually harder to get into i, I was probably 16 before i really got into that one it was just something about the storytelling itself as a whole that was just trickier for my my young sensibilities but this one worked because it was just so visually interesting uh, so even when the story would seem slow and drab it, it this was you gotta remember this was when i was 11 chad we didn't have the internet yet no. So uh, I was watching a lot more TV <laughs> and I'd watch whatever <laughs> dad had in his VHS collection. So, but this was one of my favorites to return to. Oh, cool. So I, I mentioned already, this was my first experience watching this film. Now, like I said, I knew it was supposed to be one of the best films ever made. But prior to this, the only Hitchcock films I had seen were The Birds, which I've seen a few times and I really enjoy, and Psycho, of course. Um, but even then, I've only seen Psycho once, and I don't remember a whole lot of it aside from the fact that I did enjoy it at the time. Mm, so You need to see a few others. I can give you some recommendations. I'm looking forward to this. Well, here's the thing. For two, maybe even three years now, I've owned this Alfred Hitchcock Masterpiece Collection box set that has 15 films, including North by Northwest, Vertigo, The Birds, Psycho, probably all of the 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 top brass alfred mm -hmm. hitchcock films are in this box set and i just had never gotten around to watching them yet and i don't have an explanation for why it's not that i wasn't interested it's just they, they weren't a priority i suppose and so i was glad to finally have a reason to crack it open and watch one of those <laughs> good good and so yeah, this is certainly one of the great places to start. I mean, if you can handle the running time and you're prepared for a slower film, it's well worth the wait. Yes. Well, I mean, it is only just over two hours long. And so it's not like an overwhelmingly long film. It might have been long for a film of the time, but I didn't feel like it was too long watching uh, earlier. 
Um, well, that's that's really good. And there is a mixed reception about the pace of the film. It's not so much that it is long, but that it is jarring in the transition between some of the themes of the story when um, certain people die, when certain people go through psychotic breakdowns, things like that. And it's it baits and switches to like a different feel for the story. You're not sure if this is a thriller or is this uh, is this a drama and a romance you know it's it's when it's making those transitions it feels like to a lot of the audience that they thought that they were just about done they thought they just finished about a movie and then now we're moving on into something else another theme so it just it has a way of feeling much longer than it is because there are scenes of like people walking around San Francisco as the story is very slowly unfolding and very little bits of revelations are coming out uh, between, you know, huge revelations. So, so just because there's not a lot of dialogue as they're driving around town or walking around town, it feels longer than it actually is. Yeah, you mentioned the the sort of genre confusion that you can sort of experience while watching this movie and what really sort of enhanced that feeling for me was that aside from the fact that i knew this movie was supposed to be excellent and like top-notch hitchcock and top-notch filmmaking in general i knew absolutely zip zero nothing about the plot i i had no idea i had no idea what this movie was about i like at all I can't emphasize that I knew nothing about what this movie was about. And so the whole time I was just thinking to myself, okay, what's happening now? What's happening next? What is going to happen at the end? I don't know. I don't know. Is this the end? No, there's still 30 (laughs) minutes left. So, um, and that wasn't a frustration. It was an, I was truly engrossed in this movie. I, I just wanted to know what was about to happen. And so with that, let's, let's, sort of transition into story and i'll start off by just saying from the get-go the opening titles of this movie are fantastic um i i've waxed poetic on this show in the past in on previous episodes about how i love a good opening title sequence where you just set everything aside you maybe get to see some names of the creative people involved in the film you get to hear an early preview of the score and in this case we get this fascinating uh picture of zooming in on a face and we zoom into the the mouth and then we pan and we zoom into the eye and the the color goes from black and white and all of a sudden it's red and then all of a sudden the eye widens and so you you realize what's what's happened what has she seen what is she experiencing and the the whole time bernard Herman herman's score is unsettling but not in the same way as psycho is unsettling there's no shriek <laughs> uh, shrieking violins here it's it's just intense it's intense that's exactly the right word for it and it's it's repetitive but not in an obnoxious way it's it's always driving it forward and uh so right from the get-go i was already on the edge of my seat okay what's about to happen what is she seeing why are her eyes widening and that that was sort of also the film's first preview of the color filters that are featured uh, sporadically throughout the film oh yeah and Mm. so i i just love that opening title sequence one because opening title sequences are awesome and we don't get enough of them anymore and two because it, i really feel like it it set the tone for the rest of the film it does it does and i was confused by it when i was younger but i really do enjoy it now it, because it, it lets you ease back into the seat and get prepared for the ride 
knowing knowing wow that's the theme music it's going to be interesting but the first uh the first scene is intense but right after the first scene it, it gets slow uh, again to introduce characters and you know kind of set the tone in a different way and sink into this mystery and this investigation this man who wants to investigate his wife and while that exposition is unfolding it, it's slower and it's well written but a lot of the first act doesn't have music to it so for the first act you know the theme of this music or this movie because you heard the music in the in- introductory titles right um, is there anything in particular about the film that really stands out to you as far as story or the actual filmmaking part of it? Oh, so many things. Like there were little effects that you pointed out, the the filters. There's also some interesting things where they were illustrating like a night terror, a night dream, a, a bad a bad nightmare. Right. And the character of Scotty, played by Jimmy Stewart, is having this horrible you know, psychotic fit of the experience of vertigo as he's like falling through his own experiences with Madeline and interwoven with those experiences with Madeline are the things that she told him she saw in her own head from her psychotic breakdown. And, and, and it's just intense. I can't imagine how it must have felt to the original audiences. The effects are not, incredible by today's standards but they are very interesting and i think that they work for their time and because you know we're spoiled on special effects these days it's not it's not nearly as interesting and in some ways it might even be colored annoying but i just think that those things uh, lend themselves to this movie make the film stronger you appreciate more of just how much of a struggle this is for Scotty. It's not it's not all up in his head in something you cannot see. They actually did their they made their most noble effort of showing you the torment that is actually going on in his head. Which right. was a it was a very noble effort with the effects that they they had for the time. And along those lines, I'm always intrigued by the moments in this film where it feels intimate when they get really close to the characters, which usually happened in romances in that era. But in this film, it was to great effect when it was in a thriller and it it makes you just feel a little claustrophobic and sometimes in the romantic way, in a positive way, in some ways, like very uncomfortable when you realized that something was off. (laughs) And then related to this, there were several scenes where I don't know if they didn't get the shot that they wanted on location, but you can tell that the background is obviously like a, a film projection screen. Right. And the, the, the only place that really stood out to me, aside from in the cars, were uh, on the beach when they're kissing for the first time. And it, it happens actually several times throughout the film. Right, but in much more subtle ways that are they don't attract attention to them. But it, it, every one of them, once you spot this happening, I, I figure that it was probably just a limitation of the times for filming that they didn't get the shot that they wanted on location, so they recreated it in a studio. 
but it works in a very charming way to kind of take you out of the film in something that should be totally off. Like imagine bad screen, green screen work, you know, in in a modern film. If there's like a an explosion behind, the, you know, the hero, and the green screen effect around the hero doesn't look right, it looks terrible. It, it doesn't ever add anything to a film. And this is the equivalent of that for that day, where the shot in the background is not really consistent with the other shots around it because it's clearly just a film projection, but. Given the oddity of this this story and the convincing performances of the characters, I think it's actually part of its charm. And I, I I observe that every time, thinking, man, everything that is in the shot is incredibly deliberate. There there are no accidents about what's in the background, and usually there's nothing of note or, or import in the foreground besides the characters from beginning to end. There aren't many material objects that they handle. Anything that you're looking at that is a material object is something in a picture or hanging on a wall. Um, there's next to none. There's next to no props in the whole film. So I don't know. I just, I, I think it's interesting. I know that's petty, but it, it, as far as like a, a filmography, filmmaking detail, it's one of its charms. Definitely. And, you know, watching this movie, even with my limited Hitchcock experience, it it felt like a Hitchcock film like this. The the filming and the, the lenses and the I, I can't really get too technical about it, but everything looked the same way as the birds looks, for example, um, since that's the Hitchcock film I'm most familiar with. Um, I love how crystal clear all the the colors are. Everything is nice and crisp. Like you said, the the locations are purposeful and everything feels like it has a meaning. And I just love the way the film looks. And especially on Blu-ray, it, it looks great. The restored version of this film it is does. fantastic. And I didn't grow up with the Blu-ray. I, this was the first time I've seen it in high def. It was amazing. I saw it things is. that I had never seen before. I didn't know that you could pull off with film from 1958. And it should be noted, at, while we're talking about shooting and locations and filming techniques, this movie did sort of pioneer the, the, the vertigo effect, as it's now called, where you place the camera on a dolly and you either uh, move the camera towards the subject while zooming out, or <laughs> you do the opposite. You you move the camera backwards while zooming in. They sort of create the same effect. And so that, that effect is used it's a few so times good. in this film, and it, it wigs you out, and it's perfect as a way of sort of demonstrating the vertigo, like the condition effect. You as uh, probably one of the more notable uses of it is when Jimmy, uh, Jimmy's character Scotty looks down the the tower, um, and you see him looking down. There's a stairway, but he's looking down at an empty space down the center, and we get that effect where the camera's moving down, it's zooming out, and it just it it throws you for a loop. It's fantastic. It is, and it was probably the first time I saw it as a child, and I was. I always love spotting it when it pops up in other movies. It happens once in The Fellowship of the Ring, and it often happens when there are characters that have like a magical spell that they've you know cast on characters on the screen, and woo, weird things are happening in the background. Uh, but here, it's actually used for I think its original and best purpose to to demonstrate acrophobic you know effects. 
to the mind and eyesight. It, oh man, it's it's not literal. Like it's not it's not something I think we actually see when we experience vertigo, no, which I have had not. a few times. But it totally captures this uncomfortable feeling. <laughs> now, now speaking of the actual story of the film, the the thing that really sort of got to me was the the slow unveiling of this story of Scotty following Madeline, right? So he's following her. He goes to this location. Okay, now he knows this little detail. And now he goes to this mm. location. Hey, this shares a similar thread to that last place. And oh, now this place shares a similar thread to that last place. And this whole time, I'm thinking to myself, does Hitchcock do supernatural very often? I mean, the birds maybe has a little bit of a supernatural effect to it, but it's mm. not like there's ever a uh, 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 explanation and explanation given to that it's just wow these birds are doing something weird and they're attacking people so it could just be like a freak of nature sort of event in that film so i didn't know what to expect here i didn't know if there was some sort of spirit supernatural spiritual event happening overtaking madeline's body and there's that one scene where he follows her to the hotel and hey she's not there what's going on and so I didn't know what to think. And you mentioned this a little bit earlier. It completely is turned on its head in the reveal towards the end of the film when we realized, oh, that wasn't supernatural at all. It was a staged murder. And all of a sudden, wow, that's why it's a Hitchcock film. And uh, I-, I loved that that sort of progression of learning a little bit, learning a little bit, learning a little bit. Now, now wait, what, what, what happened? What? What? <laughs> and then the reveal comes and it's, it's, uh, a very great storytelling sort of narrative. So I was wondering, did that take you out of the film at all when you'd switched from the the supposed supernatural aspect into the, nope, this is just a simple you know murder mystery and it's just a very elaborate one, I guess, and it's misleading at times. D- did it bug you at all that they were exploring the supernatural but then left left really that theme you know hanging out to dry without any explanation or closure not necessarily because i didn't feel like i was cheated out of anything i just felt like it was a grand story reveal now i will say during the supernatural section of this movie if you want to call it that i was reminded very much of the shining by stanley kubrick which we've also talked about on this show um you even get a shot of a car winding up a, a hilly mountainside you get the 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 idea of a hotel you get the idea of sort of people from the past uh, possessing bodies of the present, right? There's those mm-hmm. so, same sort of themes that obviously The Shining came afterwards and maybe it's sort of hearkening back to this story. But that that was what I was ultimately reminded of during the supernatural portion of the film. And it departs from that once we, we get the reveal about the staged murder. And then it just turns into this incredibly depressing narrative where you're following Jimmy Stewart's character. You're following Scotty and you're you're watching him sink lower and lower into depression and trying to take um Judy and turn her into this girl who's passed away and uh it 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 really is heartbreaking as you watch him sort of obsess over this woman and we know the truth at this point we don't know if it's ever going to be revealed to him what the truth is and it, it I was really feeling for the guy and maybe not sympathizing with him well I, I, I think I get the terms mixed up. I, I wasn't empathizing with him. I was sympathizing with him, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. 
And like you couldn't necessarily relate to his problem, but you understood how terrible it would be to be in that problem. Definitely. I think that's the one I'm going for. And I think that sympathize. So, uh, it, I, I really love the sort of opposing tones of this film. And it really, while his is just really prevalent from the moment it starts to sink in that he, he is attracted to this woman that he is investigating that is married to his client who's an old friend. It's really complicated. You realize the frustration he must have that is not happening on screen, but it's just implied by his behavior. Like he is a man of the law and he's ha got a, a good reputation and he, 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 you know, he's, you know, met many women. He was obviously probably attracted to, but he has been faithfully going steady with Midge for years, this other woman who wears glasses has a modest job in San Francisco, like he does. He's got a modest job, but you know, it's like even though he never committed to Midge outright, he has been faithful in a relationship with a woman, and he's been kind to her. And obviously, she still sees something in him, even though they used to be engaged, but they're not engaged now. So you know, he's got he's got some character, and here he is slipping into a real you know difficult problem that he he's convinced he's in love with this woman madeline who is married who is suspect of a psychotic breakdown or you know like uh what do we call it um the uh supernatural possession of a of, of a woman who committed suicide i mean this is this is difficult stuff it's weighty it and is. he's and there's a there was that point where johnny is getting some details and doing some fact checking with Gavin, Madeline's husband. And he's just comparing notes and he says, do you know about, you know, Carlotta, you know, who is Madeline's great grandmother and how, you know, it, it looks kind of strange that, you know, she was, you know, married and then, or not, not married, but had, you know, uh, she was this man's mistress. And then she was abandoned, had a child, but then she, she, her life was miserable and she grew old, miserable without her child and without a man and lost love there and ultimately committed suicide. And then now your wife is pattering, you know, uh, patterning her, her life around what Colada did. And then Gavin says, my wife never heard of Carlotta, doesn't know anything about her. <laughs> right. Scotty is in disbelief, but he believes <laughs> Gavin, which might have been his first huge mistake. But for whatever reason, it worked at that at that moment. He was convinced he should trust Gavin. And when Gavin said, My wife knew nothing about Carlotta, he does, and he says he, he picks up like a scotch and he says, Boy, do I need this? <laughs> right. He like he knows how mind boggling and disturbing this situation is. And uh that was just the tip of the iceberg. That that was just the beginning of his problems. <laughs> right. Well, let's talk about him specifically just a little bit more. Uh so what what is there about Scotty or Johnny, whatever you want to call him in this film, Jimmy Stewart's character. Yeah, what what, yeah. what draws you to him in this film? Well, he he's a dynamic individual. Just starting out with his name, the fact that they dabble with characters' names—they're called different things. Uh, you know, even Midge at one point refers to herself as Margaret, 
And it's like when uh, you think of yourself as Joe versus you think of yourself as Joseph, the person you really are versus the your public persona and the you know the the name that everybody that calls you among your friends and acquaintances and you know distant relations and so forth. There's that breakdown where they established that early on that Johnny Scotty is different people. He is a different person to different people. Right. And that that does explain some of the oddities between like vibes of the genre bouncing back and forth throughout the film because he's really jovial with Midge at the beginning of the film and then he's very uh, dry and business as usual with Gavin at the beginning of the film and then while he's following and studying Madeline he's just this quiet investigator but then when he's with Madeline he's this guy who is just mesmerized by this woman and he 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 wants to provide for her and protect her in any way he can. And so he is the romantic through and through. And so he's got many faces through his film, eventually leading to his own internal, you know, tumultuous bag of problems. Right. Where where it just he depression sinks in when things go awry. This has got to be one of Jimmy Stewart's most dynamic characters. It is a wider range of personality. And a lot of people like to tease Jimmy as being really good at looking like a man with a psychotic breakdown after It's a Wonderful Life in this film, like his two starring memorable performances. And both of those characters look absolutely shaken and out of their minds at one point in the film. Yet, for the most part of Jimmy's career, he just looks like a very nice, gentlemanly, good guy, you know. With a normal life, mild-mannered, and uh, unless you're thinking about his westerns, so I just find his his part in this story thought-provoking, intelligent, human because he's flawed. Like he makes those mistakes at the throughout the film. Like he falls in love with this other man's wife, and he also trusts an old friend he really shouldn't be trusting. But given the circumstances, you understand why he did it. And then you don't justify it, and you, really, you don't think that he does either, but he's pretty depressed by the point that he's just willing to grasp onto anything that resembles something that we can, you know, restore some sense of balance to his life. And, and, but you really see that the all of this started with something as innocuous and unavoidable as his acrophobia. Like, that was the chink in his armor. And it was ahead of its time. I think if this movie were told now, the movie would go to much better lengths to express the the struggle, the inner turmoil, the way that this rocked Scotty's world. How he was this very successful investigator on you know for many years, and then one bad experience with acrophobia made him question all of his success and his his performance as a reliable and uh you know stalwart of the police force now he's he's shaken and he's he's struggling not not in this film like he he really is trying to get by he's really trying to move on and, and it's just not it's not working out <laughs> because the chink in his armor develops into not one but two people die because you can't get over your vertigo and, and that just ruins him Especially since he he loved the second person. 
So good. So interesting. It goes from a, a trait that he knows nothing about to in the opening of the scene, he discovers, oh, I guess I suffer from vertigo. That kind of sucks. And then it eventually, with the death of quote unquote Madeline, uh, becomes a defining character trait. It, it consumes him. And so it, it really is fascinating watching this journey of this character as he's slowly overtaken by this inner demon, as it were. Um, and I guess this is the part of the podcast where I make myself further sound like a terrible film fan and admit that this is the first Jimmy Stewart film I've seen. um and i mean the truth of the matter is i i love film but there are definitely gaps i have yet to fill and um some of these more classic films are one of those wider gaps at the moment that i'm slowly working on so this was my first experience with jimmy stewart and i thought he was entirely absorbing entirely sympathetic and empathetic i i identified with him i pitied him i cared about what his character went through and how he suffered and uh i rooted for him in the moments when it mattered and it i don't know if i could do that with every actor who might have been in this role so i think that he was definitely very well cast and he brought out a side of this this fascinating character that um really made me like his character a lot and i mean he is the main character so i don't know if that says a whole lot but i i I really did enjoy stewart's performance in this movie what do you have to say about Judy slash Madeline? Uh, uh, Judy slash Madeline. We really don't know who this woman is because we don't know the fullest extent of her lies, her performances. Like Madeline was obviously a facade. So how much of Judy was a facade if she was trying to cover herself up and pr- pretend and live a normal life in San Francisco, one of the cities of her one of her crimes, at least her first crime, maybe her only crime. Maybe maybe it was the only crime she was ever going to commit. But we we know actually so little about Judy. Nothing is really confirmed. We understand that she played this tremendous lie and pulled a wool over Scotty's eyes because apparently she was into this guy plotted the murder of his wife. And apparently Judy was having an affair with this man and cooperated with his dastardly plan to murder his wife, who she just happens to look a lot alike. You know, she just looks a lot like Madeline. Well, that's not a coincidence. Doesn't sound like Gavin was up to anything there. So so Judy is like, like really uh, naive to play into Gavin's plan if she thought that she was really going to have Gavin's, you know, affection and loyalty after murdering his own wife and making up these terrible lies about Madeline, the real Madeline, who we never get to know. <laughs> we never see in this whole movie. We, we, we know she died. We saw her body, but we, we don't actually know what Madeline was really like. And if Madeline was anything like Judy's performance of that person, why on earth would Gavin give her up? She's so perfect. She's so charming. She's so interesting. She is so captivating. So why on earth would he give Judy up who could personify that? I don't know. It's interesting how people respond to Madeline, to Judy, and also how incredibly uh, 
just provocative she is because she she's diabolical but so convincing to be just a victim of a psychotic breakdown with a supernatural takeover which is just a lie within a lie there is the real madeline who's not got a psychotic breakdown and then there is this this falsified madeline which is a lie who's going through something that real madeline is not it's just it's wild it's interesting so multiple viewings of this film add a lot more character to this this role it was already a, a great performance but as you watch it again you imagine and you can um, you can see how judy is playing scotty as madeline who's making up a wild story and she just hits all of scotty's buttons and she she is so convincing and she is so attractive and, and so perplexing is so that when you finally see that judy is this madeline you know <laughs> performer it, it's, it's it's just mind-boggling i don't know and then to see her metamorphosis back into, okay, I'll be whatever you want me to be, Scotty, if you'll only love me. So I will readopt the persona of Madeline if you'll just love me. It's like, really? Really? That's that's the basis for your love and relationship? Oh, man. You feel bad for that woman because you realize just how bizarre confused and wrong this thinking is and it, it cannot last it cannot work and at the same time it is so convincing on screen that they really that they really love each other but you realize if scotty could pull himself out of his emotional torments he'd realize he he didn't know one real woman in this whole story besides Midge. Madeline was not somebody he ever knew. And Judy was someone that was living multiple lies. So it's so complicated. And uh, it, it just an, an interesting romantic tragic thriller. And it, it is all made possible. Not by Gavin who I deem to be the most responsible antagonist and villain. But really, by Madeline. Madeline, a.k.a. Judy, makes this movie. Yeah, the real tragedy of the film comes from her character because, you know, I, I don't think that she and uh, Gavin were necessarily having an affair. I think she was just paid to to pretend to be his wife in order to convince Scotty that he, that, uh, that she was going crazy. Like, he was just... You think so? Yeah, okay. I, I think she was just... Uh, I can buy you a theory. Him to be a witness, right? Um, which is why she so easily uh, falls for him during this deception, right? Hmm. Uh, the, and you've given me much to think about in just the last few seconds, Chad. <laughs> right? I I don't think she was romantic with yeah. Gavin at all. I think it was just, um, which is like a, like I said, it's why she was so easily easy to fall for uh, Scotty. And in retrospect, once the reveal happens and we realize, oh, okay, she wasn't actually his wife, it sort of 
calmed me a little bit because I, I was sort of bothered by the fact that Scotty was so willing to uh, take his friend's wife, right? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think part of his willingness to be so gung-ho for their relationship and to fall so head over heels in love with her is because she fell so head over heels in love with him, right? And she was able to do that because she wasn't tied down to anybody. That's sort of the way that. the way I yeah. interpreted it. And that's what makes the tragedy later in the film. She has always loved him, right? She's the only he is the only person that Judy, as we come to know her, has loved. And then as Scotty finds her, but he doesn't know it's her, she's like, Okay, maybe this is my chance to just have him love me for me. And that's when it starts getting real depressing because he doesn't want her. He doesn't want some look like he wants Madeline. He wants the, her clothes, her hair, her mannerisms, her everything. He wants Madeline. And so from scene to scene, as he slowly changes her bit by bit into this image in his head, she's trying to cling to herself as much as she can. So she she, she wants to just be herself. Oh, no, I want you to get this dress. Okay, well, if I wear the dress, then will you love me for me? Yes, I will. Oh, no, now, now I need you to color your hair, and now I need you to do this. And it, it's nonstop. She is so in love with him that she's willing to do whatever it is to herself to appease him, which ultimately is turning her into somebody else. And that that's so depressing. Like I said, that, that, that part of the film really sort of brought me down and not not to the point that I was bummed out watching this film, but it was just a sad sort of spiral downwards into this this obsession for Scotty. And I, I empathized with her character. It, it was really sad watching her so desperately cling to Scotty that he she was willing to become Madeline. That is rough. I mean, just... Uh. And she was trusting him, too. Like when she jumps into the San Francisco Bay Bridge. A bay, I mean. <laughs> she didn't jump into the bridge. But when she jumped into the bay, she did not know really much at all about Scotty besides anything Gavin had told her. And all things considered, Gavin didn't know a lot about Scotty. And then Judy played this performance that... She's under, you know, mind control by Carlotta, controlling Madeline, jumps into the bay to commit suicide, and goes unconscious. Then, you know, the natural honorable thing for Scotty to do is he rescues her. But it's not simple because he's not welcome into Gavin's home, so he takes her back to his apartment, his condo, whatever. And there he's just looking after her and he hopes to actually get some answers from Madeline. And Judy's playing along with this. And she pretends to be sleeping. And, you know, man, it's 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 strange. But Judy totally sells it and convinces Scotty because she was in his own home. In a way that, say, Midge who was his other interest before Madeline never was. And, and, and so because she really showed, you know, if you actually go back and you think through the, the fun and playful banter between Midge and Scotty, it is like old friends who have been almost like serious life partners, but at the same time, 
completely uncommitted dating people who don't want to admit that they're really dating and don't want to admit that they're boyfriend, girlfriend. You know, it, it's like a very complicated and consistent performance through the dialogue and their behavior around each other. And that's not at all what Madeline is offering Scotty. This woman who he feels like he can be passionate about, who is romantic, who trusts him and needs him. And he, he thinks he is just on the edge of providing the answers to her problems. Whereas Midge doesn't really need him. At least she doesn't let on any way that she needs him. So again, Scotty feels like, yeah, you're an independent person. You're a lot like me. You're fine, and I'm fine. We're all fine here. We're just fine, right, Midge? Um, with Madeline, it's more like, man, you're such a, an incredible human being with such a, an incredible problem. How can I help you? You know, it's so obvious. It's right there. And Madeline wears her problems on her sleeve. Right, uh, Judy. Judy wears her problems on her sleeve. Right. It, it's sort of sad watching Midge in this film. I don't have a whole lot to say about her, but because she obviously still has some sort of feelings for Scotty, and maybe they start off well at the beginning of the film, but as he is introduced to Madeline and falls in love with her and slowly obsesses over her and then goes into the spiraling de depression over her, uh, Midge just goes into the background. He doesn't really care, and eventually it gets to the point so where rough. he's so obsessed and so depressed over Madeline, the loss of Madeline, that he's completely catatonic. He's non-responsive. He doesn't say a word to Midge when he when she is uh, visiting him in the the hospital, right in the sanatorium, and so it, it's and then we don't see anything else from her. So it, it's. I, I sort of wish we had more of a conclusion or maybe some sort of resolution, but I mean, this, this movie isn't about happy endings. So, um, everybody suffers in this film, except for, <laughs> I guess, Gavin, I suppose he's the one who makes it off the way he wanted. Um, but, um, well, I imagine the law had to catch up with him after, after Scotty learned the truth. Yeah, I would hope so. Uh, we, we can think that to ourselves at least. <laughs> yeah. Um, a little then, inception going on there. Yes, and then before we move on to um, music real quick, I just want to say um, how depressing that, well, <laughs> one, okay, Scotty just goes through a lot in this movie. He falls in love with this girl. She dies. He meets this girl who looks like the first girl. He makes her look like the first girl. She dies. He goes through all of this only to lose the same girl twice. <laughs> and I, I can't imagine the, the follow-up to this movie, what that would have been like, what his state of mind would have been. I mean, if, if he was catatonic the first time he lost Madeline, imagine losing quote unquote, the real Madeline this time, because this is the woman that he fell in love with to begin with. And so, so um, confusing. It, so it is, confusing. but it, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Storytelling is what it is. And you really empathize with these characters, despite their roller coasters, despite all that they go through there, there's a lot to like about the characters and, it it really makes you attached to them as they suffer and you suffer with them. So all of that aside, what about the music in this movie, Joe? I love it. One of the things is it, it presents like the feeling of danger and bittersweet romance all the time. Right. Those are the, the, the two sort of main themes the, most of the time when you hear music in this film, it's the sort of, maybe not action is the word, but the tense, pulsing forward, repetitive 
circular kind of music and then we have the the lush orchestral romance bittersweet is the word you used and i think that's perfect that kind of theme and we hear that in the 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 scenes between uh scotty and whatever the woman he's with at the time is whether it's you know judy or whether it's madeline um well in a way it's sort of playing its hand it it feels as though the music is cueing you into that if the music was a character it already knows the outcome of the story because it understands this scene as we pan over san francisco and see an interesting art gallery and oh what is this it's just an innocent looking cemetery that i mean that the visuals that's what the visuals are telling you but the music is telling you oh this is bad oh this is bad oh oh (laughs) it's so sad and and so you're like why why is it so sad so uh, over and over again the music is saying oh i know how it's going to happen i know what's going to happen and ah I feel for these people and I love that it it, it really, it it makes you relive the experience over and over again, very well with multiple viewings where you feel like the, the music carries not just the film like it did the first time you watched the movie, but now in the second viewing, it is right there with you in the second viewing saying, yep, you and I can now appreciate this scene together in a new way it's not the same right i mentioned earlier bernard herman was not a name i was overly familiar with but when i say when i hear bernard herman i hear the psycho theme i hear the the screeching violins and the i see the shower and i see the chocolate sauce dripping down the water faucet right um because that's what they used anyways um (laughs) (laughs) um That's what I associated with Bernard Herrmann before this. And so I was not expecting what we got here. And just like he does in Psycho, he amps up the tension, but he does it in a completely different way here. We we get this ongoing circular sort of music. It's repetitive, but it's not repetitive to the point of annoyance. Like I said earlier, it's it's very sort of indicative of the theme of the movie as it is right there there is a sense of repetition there is a sense of circularity and so the the themes of the movie are very well echoed in the music both in the tension and as you were talking about with the romance and the sort of bittersweet feeling we get with that pill so anything else to say about the music real quick before we move on to sort of closing thoughts or getting that way no no i just suggest that anyone who appreciated the music the first go around should listen to it by itself if you can handle it sometimes it gets really bombastic and it, it, it you might want to fast forward a few parts or it's like okay i get the point in isolation it can feel very bombastic and uh, very uh forceful like okay i get the point but in the film it just works flawlessly Right, and I am definitely looking forward to repeat viewing so I can pay a little bit more attention to the music and certainly listening to it separate from the film as well because I think to fully appreciate a film score, you have to sort of look at it in both respects. And so since I only have watched this movie once at this point, I'm really looking forward to revisiting the film both for the film and for the music. Mm. So Mm. um, now sort of wrapping up, we've talked a lot about general themes and takeaways from this movie, but I just maybe had a couple quick ones that I wanted to throw in. So for starters, there's constant use of mirrors and reflections in this movie. And I really noticed that because I noticed that in every movie, you know, 
the way the camera is used is always for a reason, or at least if you're a good filmmaker and you're a good cinematographer, you're going to use the camera in a purposeful way. And so I, I mentioned the shining earlier, but the shining has this one very specific shot where Danny has walked in and he's looking at his father and, uh, Jack Nicholson's character is sitting on the bed and we see him reflect it. We're looking at his back. The camera's behind him, but we see his face in the mirror and we see Danny head on. And so th there's this interesting shot. There there's maybe one or two others, but that shot's shot in particular is what stands out as a mirror shot in yeah. the film. Now, this movie, they are everywhere. That's the, that's the reason I bring up the shining scene because I always look for those mirror shots. I look for how the director <laughs> places the camera. And here, it's just all over the place. And the best I can sort of think of on this first viewing is that the reflections and the mirrors sort of represent the mirrored personalities. You were talking about this earlier, but the our three main characters sort of have different names different faces there's john and there's scotty there's judy and there's madeline there's midge and there's margaret they they have different faces for for different people and for different situations and we see these different faces throughout the film and um i i really think that the the use of the mirrors helps to bring that point home a little bit do you remember what scotty's last name is i always think of him as scotty it's ferguson Ferguson. Okay. You remember the first time that Madeline and Scotty are talking in his, his, uh, his apartment. Right. This and is right after she's jumped in the bay. They're dealing with name introductions and Madeline asks him, you know, what do I call you? And he says, you know, my, uh, in my, my, let's call me John. I think that you could call me Johnny after what we went through today, saving your life and all. But you know, my acquaintances call me Scotty. And Madeline being the Madeline that she is at that point in time, she says, well, I think I'll call you Mr. Ferguson. <laughs> and she <laughs> totally means it out of respect and appreciation for, you know, his seniority and saving her life. But she's also just being like a real, a real lady in a polite and charming sort of way. And very quickly, Scotty says, no, no, don't call me Mr. Ferguson. Uh, I, I loved that that little insight into again the the persona that he rejected. He did not want to be an old man, <laughs> right? And uh, one other thing that I wanted to point out before I let you take it home, sort of. There's a few instances in this film where silhouettes are used, and the first major one that I really noticed was uh, when it's it's before they go to the mission, right before. Madeline dies the first time um, and she shows up outside Scotty's apartment and the, when he first opens the door she's completely silhouetted she's completely black we don't see anything yeah. and then the light comes out behind her and that's very very major foreshadowing hey something's about to happen right somebody's about to die yes or and then later I don't remember the specific scene but I, I wrote down hiding identity right there's another moment where somebody is oh it's it's the very ending of course it's when they are at the top of the tower um scotty has overcome his fear of heights he is confronting judy about her deception and all of a sudden a figure appears on the stairway and it's that figure <laughs> completely silhouetted who scares judy off the the balcony and whoops there she goes she's dead too and 
then it's of course revealed that it's a nun of all things. And so it, there, there's a couple instances, a few instances of these silhouettes used to sort of maybe hide a, an, an identity or to foreshadow death. And in both circumstances, it sort of does the same. Or reflects the other person, the other persona. Right, for sure. When uh, Scotty sees Judy, who's put on the makeup, dyed her hair, changed her into the gray suit, but hasn't put her hair up right. And she looks so much like Madeline, but not like Madeline. And then she goes over to the window of her apartment and sits down on the arm of a chair. And the green neon lights outside capture just her silhouette. And it's Judy, but it's not Judy. Her silhouette is exactly Madeline's. And so it's like that ghost is a black hole right there then and there before judy even fixes her hair right and scotty can see it it's like oh that's madeline that's madeline's silhouette more so than even seeing her face this is this person is madeline in uh in his mind's eye right now were there any other sort of takeaways or big themes maybe that you noticed that we haven't sort of touched on yet well one of them is i i guess that if you want to get into the spiritual quality of the story, how much suffering love can cause you, whether it's a, you know, a healthy, balanced, responsible form of love, like you would hope for to happen between a character like, like Midge and Scotty. Maybe it just wasn't interesting. Maybe they weren't being real with each other. But at the same time, when I say that, I mean it as an expression. They were being real with each other. And yet, their love didn't deepen. And then in this very twisted way, when these two people, Scotty and Madeline slash Judy, were not and couldn't be real with each other, couldn't be their best, they find themselves in love with some version of an ideal in the other person. But then, because they believe in that lie, it just sinks them tragically into this dismal, problematic scenario relationship. It, it cannot go, it cannot end well. It can't go anywhere. They're not really in love with the right things or the real people. And it's so sad. Right, they're sort of more in love with the idea of people than the people yeah. themselves. Um, but they are so convinced that they are loving the people right then and there. Right. So in that same sense, it's sort of about the dangers of obsession to a certain extent as well, I think. Um, right. Right. Because what isn't really a love sinks quickly into just unhealthy obsession. And you could see that through and through Scotty, especially. Right. And where it begins is that scene that we were talking about earlier where um, – she has just been rescued from the San Francisco Bay and she's drying off and warming up in his apartment. And he says, you know, they say that once you save somebody's life, you're responsible for them for the rest of their lives or something to that effect. And that's where the obsession sort of begins. That's where he sort of first feel these, feels these inklings towards her and that builds and builds and builds and she dies. And then it, it spirals downward. And Speaking of spirals, I mean, there's a lot of spirals in this film, too. The opening credits features a spiral <laughs> when we see 
uh, Madeline fall. It's in a spiral motion. And during uh, his dream before he wakes up in the catatonic state, Scotty sees her fall again in a spiral motion. So there's spirals everywhere too. And the idea of spiraling into depression or spiraling into obsession, um, there's all these various ideas present in this film. I want to say there was something that you wanted to talk about here, and I, I don't want to take too much time, but you ask the question, what impact has this movie made on your life? I, I feel a very deep connection to the film because of association. Uh, I really like Jimmy Stewart as an actor, uh-huh. and I've seen and appreciate his performances in a wide spectrum of ways. And I, I just think he was very talented. Then Kim Novak playing Madeline. I, I don't know that I've seen her in anything else, but she just has a really standout performance for a very twisted sort of character. And Judy slash Madeline slash Kim doesn't actually come across as all that threatening, but she's a really dangerous person. As a person, I mean, I'm saying Kim is dangerous, but she definitely captures this complicated woman who is really dangerous. And then you have just uh, the themes, the tragic love. And something I learned early on was that a lot of love ends up tragic. I love love. Don't get me wrong. I'm an optimist, but I'm also... I understand the reality that not everything works out as you hoped. And this is one time when love was washed out and replaced with ridiculous obsession. And I know what obsession looks like. Unfortunately, I've tasted its bitter fruits. So I, uh, I'm not necessarily like consoled by this film, but I am reminded of many dangers that are relatable. So you, you say you're on the spectrum of sympathizing with Scotty. I'll, I'll admit I, I sympathize with him, but I also empathize with him as well. Right. Just to sort of echo that, the impact this has already had on me. I mean, I just watched this film earlier today, so it's not like it's completely changed my life, whereas you've been watching it since you were 11 years old. Um, so for me, this might be my true gateway into Hitchcock films and maybe into Jimmy Stewart films. Who knows? We'll see what, where this goes from here. But I, I've definitely found the appeal of both of those with this film. And I'm looking forward to exploring both the careers of Jimmy Stewart and of Alfred Hitchcock. And finally diving into this 15 film box set that I have collecting dust on a shelf and, uh, exploring those and just enjoying Good filmmaking, because that's what Please this is. Please do. Please do. All of your listeners are thinking, yes, <laughs> open the vault again. Talk more about Hitchcock. Definitely. And I, I should say, uh, the the people over at Feel and Film, Aaron White and Patrick Hicks, you've heard both of them on this show. They are sort of hosting an Alfred Hitchcock uh, watching, uh, party's not the right word, but challenge for this year, for 2017, the, the people uh, with their, with that podcast and in their Facebook group, 
they are working on watching the entire filmography of Alfred Hitchcock this year. Whoa, that's a lot. Yes, it it is. And so uh, I I feel sort of honored for our first episode of the new year being sort of fitting into that Mm. challenge. And who knows, maybe I'll find a way to participate in my own way. So Mm. definitely check that out and definitely go check out Vertigo because I have discovered how great a film it is. It is across the board from what a lot of people say, the best film of all time. And I I can definitely see that appeal after my first viewing and hoping to build that view, uh, build that with future viewings. Also for anyone who did enjoy vertigo, if you haven't seen rear window, check it out. It's another great Hitchcock slash Jimmy Stewart film. And it doesn't carry the same vibe, but it, or same theme. I mean, but it is definitely good. And a little less serious, but still very intriguing. Great. Maybe that'll be what I'll watch next. We'll see. So um, any other final thoughts, Joe? No, sir. It's been a pleasure. It has. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody. This has been the official 23rd episode of Cinescope. Um, You can find the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast and at Cinescope pod on Twitter. One more reminder this episode, please go to iTunes, rate, review, subscribe. Even if you don't use iTunes, you just have to click the button and ignore it for the rest of time. It doesn't matter. Um, But that would definitely be a big help to us. And remember, we do have an email address, thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com, where you can send feedback and ideas. Or if you're interested in co-hosting, if you have a film that you love and you think you could talk about it for a little bit, uh, I, I try to make the guest process on this show very easy for you so just let me know i'd love to have you on and talk about a movie with you joe where can people find you online i'm mostly alive and kicking on twitter these days my handle is jcs darnell and i do have a blog haven't had much time to write on there lately and i haven't been doing as much podcasting as i want to but i do have some things in the works so If you want to catch up with me next time, I'll have more to share. Definitely. And like I I, I mentioned this show earlier, but uh, you do podcast with TJ Draper occasionally over on Retake on the Night Owl FM podcast network. So uh, links for Joe's Twitter and his blog and Retake will all be in the show notes. Thank you very much. No problem. And the best place to find me is on Twitter at Chadadada, that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A, and on Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And all the show notes, all the contact information I mentioned can be found at our website, thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you once again, Joe. It's always a pleasure talking to you, and I'm glad to have helped you scratch that podcast itch that you may not have had scratched in a little bit. (laughs) First podcast of 2017. Excellent. Thank you, Chad. No problem. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 23. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 24. Have fun and celebrate movies. Movies.